Drew and I have been close friends and collaborators for over half a decade. After years of private conversations that span topics including fitness and physical performance, science of wellness and longevity, career success and development, mental models for better decision making, and more, we finally decided to record these conversations for a wider audience. This podcast is our attempt to play a positive sum game with an audience of fellow lifelong learners, ambitious individuals, and those driven to not only succeed, but gain fulfillment, satisfaction, and a bit of wisdom from everything they do in life. To complement the show, James put together comprehensive show notes, which you can receive free of charge by subscribing to our Substack newsletter at positivesumpod.substack.com or by using the link in the description. We've also created a Positive Sum Discord, which you can also find in the description. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with a friend or loved one and give our show a rating on the platform where you stream podcasts. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's get to the show. All right. Episode 18. We're back. Drew, how do you feel about episode 18? Feeling pretty good. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a solid episode. It's a kind of 50-50 episode where James and I both have pretty equal interest in it. Um, I don't think that it's going to be an episode where I'm necessarily leading and James is kind of uh, falling or vice versa. So I think it'll be a, a good conversation. Yeah, we're going to be talking about sleep today, which I think is something we both know a good amount about and um, is very important, uh, I think, for everybody to know about. So we're going to go over some of the just basics of things you need to know about sleep, sleep physiology, um, some of the benefits of many of the benefits of getting a good night of sleep, as well as a lot of the detriments of for not getting good sleep. And then we'll also go over some tips, strategies, tools that you can use, some things you can do starting, uh, you know, tonight even to get better sleep. Um, I think what we find is like getting better sleep is pretty, pretty cheap thing to do. Uh, it's mostly behavioral Definitely. and environmental, and it's a lot of things that are uh, within your control. So if you're somebody who struggles with sleep, definitely want to listen to this one. But uh, before we begin, I think we're just kind of going to recap a little bit. We've been active on YouTube. Drew's been putting out some some shorts. Um, hopefully, you guys are seeing those. Um, but we're trying to put out more um, digestible insights and clips from the episodes. Those are sort of the shorts. We're going to start putting out three, four-minute, five-minute clips of some of the highlights from the episode. So, uh, So look out for those. Yeah, I think the like three to five minute clips will be pretty helpful because a lot of people have different attention spans. So just allowing um, some different preferences in there um, will be helpful. You know, if you only have five minutes or so, you can still catch up with things that we're talking about and still get the uh, meat and potatoes of the episode. So really excited about that. And then also excited about some of the shorts that will be dropping soon, uh, which will also be from the show mostly. Uh, so if you have even less time, then you can view it that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that'll be good. I mean, that's how I, that's how I consume a lot of podcasts and stuff, just clips on, on YouTube. Um, I've actually probably listened to less just like full podcasts lately and been doing more of that. So that'll be good for us to do, uh, for everyone. 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, but yeah, I think we can get into it. So James, do you want to give a little bit of a backstory about how you kind of got into sleep? I think for both of us, it was kind of the Matthew Walker book slash podcast tour originally. Uh, do you want to go into that a little bit? Maybe some of your sleep journey? Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to start because um, it's a good disclaimer for anybody listening. Learning about sleep can be one of the most probably detrimental things to your sleep because you just become so conscious of it and then it becomes hard to fall asleep. But don't worry that we'll, we'll try to make sure that doesn't happen today. But yeah, Matthew Walker, he's a PhD sleep scientist and he came out with this book back in I don't know, what was it, like 2017, 2018, probably? Yeah, I would say around then. Yeah, and that's when he kind of burst onto the scene and started doing podcasts and talking about sleep. But this book was like nobody – I mean, I guess people probably had written books about sleep before. But this was the the this was like the atomic habits, but for sleep. Like it was the pop science uh, book that made sleep science really accessible to people. And it's just a book that goes over like – the, the biology of sleep, the science behind it, what happens when we sleep, what happens when we don't sleep, findings from a ton of research. Um, I actually have it right here on my bookshelf. Um, so this is it right here. This could be the the thumbnail for the YouTube video. Um, there you go. First thumbnail with James in it. But yeah, it's not like, it's not a very thick book. It's only, only, I mean, it's about 340 pages, so. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of information and, uh, yeah, it just goes over everything I, I, I just said, <laughs> but the, the thing about it is like, I read this book when it came out and it honestly gave me some trouble sleeping for a little while because like, it just made me so self-conscious about my sleep and aware of it. And like, once you become aware of the detriments of sleep, it can become scary to, to not sleep. Um, and I think that kind of happened to me. Drew, do you have, did you have any experience with that? I wouldn't say that I had a ton of trouble sleeping after it, but I definitely was far more aware of the detriments that occur when you don't sleep. And I think that just like any other pop science or pop psychology book, it was uh, pretty one directional, like it definitely slanted towards one side and one extreme, and there wasn't as much nuance. And I think that was very unsettling for a lot of people because a lot of people already struggle with their sleep and they might have different sleep disorders and they know that they want to sleep better. They want to have better quality sleep and quantity of sleep. But the last thing you need is somebody telling you that you're going to you know, get Alzheimer's because you're short sleeping and things like that. So yeah. I think that the book was helpful in making a lot of people aware of the detriments to short sleep and poor sleep quality. But a lot of people found that they were um, left kind of in a state of fear uh, because of their inability to sleep, uh, which I think Matthew Walker has come full circle with and kind of walk some certain things back because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't help that, you know, I mean, he did the podcast rounds after this book came out. So you had every podcaster talking about, you know, making clips and, you know, to get clicks, like clips are like pretty sensational, you know, like this destroys your sleep. This will get you great sleep. 
doing this one thing wrong or like not not sleeping leads to you know 800 percent increase in mortality that's not a real figure i'm just making that up but um yeah so, so you also saw the downstream effects of this were a lot of I don't want to say sensationalism, but maybe probably over-exaggeration of what the book says. Um, not that it's not important, but it became this thing where, yeah, it's if you got seven hours and 59 minutes of sleep, it was, you know, your life was over, which is obviously not the case. Yeah, definitely. I think that sort of coincided with the like wearable revolution as well, where it was the first time where people could really quantify a lot of these things from their wrist. And that was in the initial years where these wearables were available and extremely inaccurate. I think that they've gotten better overall. And when I say wearables, I mean uh, things like Apple Watch, Aura Ring, Fitbit, Whoop. Uh, When they first came out, I think that the quality of them weren't uh, very good, but that sort of coincided with a for the first time where people could measure their sleep down to the minute and the different phases of sleep. And they kind of became these citizen scientists um, and really equipped by this book as kind of a user manual to sleep. So there's some pros to that. And then also some, some cons as well, obviously. Yeah. I, I definitely fell victim to that. I was wearing a Fitbit at the time of reading the book. And so I was able to track my sleep and even just, just knowing that it was on my wrist and tracking my sleep was kept me up at night. Um, not to mention it was, it was pretty uncomfortable actually. I eventually got used to it, but, um, and we'll talk about wearables too and and what some of the pitfalls of those are and and caveats that you need to know. So don't, they're not, you know, spoiler, they're not a hundred percent accurate. Um, not, not even close really, but they're still, uh, useful and they're becoming more accurate as time goes on. So they're definitely a useful tool to have, but, uh, we'll we'll kind of talk about some of the ways you should think about wearables and trackers uh, in regard to, to sleep and maybe in a future episode in just regard to overall health. Yeah, definitely. But I think just getting into it, I wanted to start with some basic facts. So uh, just to quantify how important sleep is, we spend 230,000 hours sleeping in an average lifespan, which is about a third of our life. So Clearly, based upon the amount of time and resources we dedicate to sleep, um, it clearly serves a purpose or else it would have been um, selected out of our genetic rev- uh, evolution. Yeah. Um, and so hold on. I want to linger there for a second, actually, because that's a, actually such an, that's such an important point. Um, if you think in terms of just evolutionary biology, sleep is... You know, before we had, uh, you know, secure homes and, you know, comfortable and uh, safe, uh, you know, neighborhoods and, and societies to live in, you know, we were sleeping out in the woods, you know, go, you go back, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years ago, we're sleeping out in the woods with maybe, you know, a small group of people around us that we know. And then other than that, you're exposed to the elements, you're spo- exposed to uh, other, other people um, who might, you know, harm you. You're exposed to uh, animals who, who could eat you or, or do harm to you. And still, we, we have been sleeping, um, you know, about a third of, uh, about a quarter of the day uh, every night, a quarter of the 24-hour period, you know, every night for all of our existence. We've been putting ourselves in a uh, 
the most vulnerable state possible. So there has to be there has to be a good reason for it to persist. And uh, as you'll see, there there are very good reasons. Yeah, definitely. I think that's such an important point. But um, what happens during sleep? So sleep is a time where we really consolidate a lot of memories and emotions and also process them. Uh, also helps with the growth and repair of tissue and muscles. So this is helpful for anyone that's exercising or even rehabbing from an injury. And then helps to regulate our hormones and metabolism. And another thing is helps to improve immune system, mood, and cognitive function. So there's a lot of benefits within that. And then obviously you can turn those on their head. And if you're not sleeping well, you're not getting enough uh, quality sleep, all these things will be negatively impacted. And then a lot of other chronic diseases, you know, heart disease goes up, um, the risk of having a stroke or developing Alzheimer's or diabetes, all these things go up as well. So some general sleep recommendations, adults should try to get as much as possible uh, between seven to nine hours of sleep. And then teenagers need a little bit more, about eight to 10 hours of sleep. And then we can look at, as we've kind of mentioned, quality and quality uh, of sleep. So you have Obviously, you know, you get eight hours of sleep, but also the quality of that sleep is important as well. Um, a lot of times people will say, I still feel tired, even though I got, you name it, seven hours, eight hours or nine hours of sleep. And oftentimes that's from uh, poor quality of sleep. Yeah, which I think that brings us nicely into talking about the uh, the stages of sleep. So um Maybe we, let's get into that because yeah, yeah sure. that, that is what determines really the quality of your sleep is how you make it through these stages. So jump exactly. So there's four or even you could say five different stages of sleep. So you start with wake, obviously. And the reason why that's important is because when you're sleeping, you have a lot of wake ups through the night, even if you don't remember them. Um, they're, they can be considered almost disturbances, and you might have about 20 of them per night, even if you don't remember. And the length of them and how, how often you're having them, if it's in excess and for an excess amount of time, might indicate poor quality of sleep. But we can start with the three stages of non-REM sleep. As many people know, REM sleep is rapid eye movement sleep when you're dreaming. But we'll start with the lighter stages of sleep and then go down all the way to the deepest, which was REM sleep. So stage one, non-REM sleep is light sleep. Uh, this is only about 5% of the night. And at this time, you have regular breathing rate. Uh, you have muscle tone. So your muscles are still kind of like on and activated. And you're going to have theta waves in the brain. And this is, like I said, only one to five minutes of the total sleep time. And then you have a deeper sleep which is stage, uh, stage two, and this is non-REM sleep. And this is when you start to have a little bit more of a drop in heart rate and uh, a drop in body temperature as well. And I think the heart rate and body temperature are important because we'll kind of circle back to those as we discuss some of the habits that you can start to work on in order to improve sleep. 
And during this time, you're going to have consolidation of ideas, uh, memories, and then also motor skills. And for anybody in sports performance that's listening, the motor skill aspect of this is extremely important because when we train, it's not just the training that's going to lead to improved skill acquisition and retention. It's also this stage of sleeping that's going to improve it as well. And we have these things in the brain called, or areas of that in the brain that undergo sleep spindles, which is like neuronal firing, uh, which increases synaptic plasticity. And really all that means is that the neurons that are involved in your skills are becoming strengthened so that when you go back to do a certain movement, it is uh, performed quicker and um, potentially more accurately. Um, so you, yeah, go on. Oh, no, I was going to say we could, should just linger on that for a second because um, what definitely it's obviously important for uh, your physical recovery and your physical skill acquisition, but it's also really important for your, your mental skill acquisition and uh, how you consolidate knowledge. So I think this, it's, this is in Why We Sleep. Um, you can probably find this information otherwhere, but elsewhere. But um, when you're learning anything new, and I'm, I, I assume this probably holds true for like physical skills, even if it's like a physical skill of like learning how to, you know, deadlift the right way or something like that. But if you're learning a, um, a mental skill or, or new knowledge, um, what happens during the day, actually, while you're learning something is uh, that very small amounts of what you learn are consolidated into long-term memory. Most of it stays in short-term memory. And it's when you sleep that your brain, uh, kind of like a computer almost, is uh, saving that information into long-term uh, memory. So uh, I think in the book in Why We Sleep, Matthew Walker talks about they took like two groups of students, uh, or just regular people, but they were college age, I think, um, and had them, uh, you know, try to learn, I think it was like a list of words or something like that, you know, just something kind of mundane, but learn something new. And they gave one group eight hours of sleep. They let them have eight hours of sleep. And the other group, they only allowed to have four hours of sleep. And the group that got eight hours of sleep was able to, um, learn more. And I think when they looked at their, um, brain scans throughout the night, I believe you can actually kind of see, um, this memory consolidation, like taking place, right? Um, it's what you said, like that you, that you get the sleep spindles and the neuronal firing going from like front of the brain to back of the brain. Um, and when that's not allowed to happen or when it's in interrupted, uh, we tend to, we, we don't retain as much information as we would like. Uh, so if you're a student, if you're trying to learn anything, this is obviously, this is just important for anybody. Um, nobody wants to forget things, so this is, but this is very, very crucial to, to understand. Definitely. And then, um, you know, as a result, something that comes into play is napping and there's been studies on performing a motor skill. So whether, whether it's, you know, hitting a baseball, um, or some move in your delivery while pitching, practicing a skill and then having a nap afterwards if you have a group that naps first doesn't nap because the group that naps might have a little bit more of these uh, sleep spindle activity, 
they're going to have improved retention when you test them later on during the day compared to the group that does not nap. Um, And something that's interesting as well, just to kind of nerd out for a second, is in the field of motor learning, which is the field that investigates how we actually learn skills, there's two types of two main types of practice. There's blocked practice, where if we're playing tennis, I'm just hitting you uh, backhand, 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 backhand over and over again. Or there's random practice where I'm just going in between forehand, backhand, hitting it down the alley, and then volley. And I'm just randomly mixing that up. And if you perform blocked practice and then do a assessment right after, the blocked practice group will do better compared to the random practice. But then when they show up the next day, somehow the random practice group does better. The group that's more challenged ends up doing better. And one of the reasons that this occurs is because of the uh, consolidation and also the almost rehabilitation that happens during sleep. So during sleep, your brain's still working on those difficult problems and then trying to fill in why we weren't successful in that random practice. So that's one of the reasons why random practice can be uh, very beneficial to motor skills, but had to entertain that, that thought for a second. Yeah, that's really interesting. That, that reminds me of one of my favorite parts from the book is I think Matthew Walker's talking about, uh, they had, uh, I think they had people learn the piano or something like that. And, what, what they did was they they took brain scans of people actively learning a skill. I think in this case, it was the piano uh, during, during a wakeful state. So I was just, you know, in the middle of the day practicing and they could kind of map uh, what that brain firing looked like of them trying to learn this skill. And it happened um, at a rate that was in accordance with their kind of physical movements and how fast they were moving. But then when they went to sleep and they uh, looked at the brain patterns during, I can't remember which stage of sleep this would be, but um, during one of the stages of sleep, that's really important to memory consolidation. It's probably one of these deeper stages of sleep. um, They saw the same pattern of brain activity that they saw while the person was actively awake and learning the skill, but it was going at something like like 20x speed or maybe even like 200x speed or something like that. So while you sleep, yeah, your brain is actively running through these things that you put a concentrated effort towards towards the day, uh, during the day, because um, you're implicitly telling your brain, uh, you know, this is important and this is something we're, you know, actively trying to learn. So your brain, your brain then spends that time at night um, kind of just re-simulating that to try to consolidate it. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of happens during a longer night of sleep as well as during naps. So as you mentioned, this is the deeper stages of sleep, but even those sleep spindles will come into play during um, N2 sleep. Um, and that can even be reached in a nap, like we we said before, which is pretty interesting. But then even more of this goes on during REM sleep, which we'll cover in a sec. So stage three uh, non-REM sleep, this is our deepest level of sleep that's non-REM related. And this is about 25% of our total sleep um, time. 
And this is a slower wave sleep. So the brain waves start to slow down. And this is where a lot of muscle repair uh, happens and the majority of growth hormone is released. About, uh, I believe, 95% of the total growth hormone during the day is released in pulses during this time. And uh, this is a very deep sleep. It's hard to be awoken from. I think I saw a figure that um, a sound level of about 100 decibels um, is required to wake most people from this state of sleep. So pretty loud. Um, and like you said, going back to the evolutionary thing, like that's a really loud noise if there's predators around. So clearly this sleep is extremely important. Yeah. Um, and actually, wait, just to hold on there too, for one more quick, just interesting fact is uh, one of the reasons you actually don't sleep uh, very well your first uh, one or two nights in a new environment, say like in a, in a hotel, I'm sure people have experienced this. You don't get a great night's sleep maybe the first night. It's because you're in an unknown environment. And so evolutionarily, your brain is just on higher alert because it can't be sure that it's safe. So it's actually harder to get into that that deep sleep. You're more alert and your brain is kind of on the lookout for for danger. Um, obviously, it doesn't really happen in a place that you're, you feel secure, which, um, you know, going back in time would have just been if you were surrounded by people you trusted. Yeah, which is actually really frustrating. I travel a decent amount and that always comes up for me. And I think even knowing that my sleep is going to be worse sleeping in a hotel for the first night and even the second night sometimes, um, it's, it's very frustrating. And I almost convinced myself that my sleep is even worse. So uh, perfect example too of where knowledge is not always power when it comes to sleep. But uh, yeah, it's just, it helps you to understand why that happens and just kind of anticipating um, that it's going to happen. But um, this stage uh, three non-REM sleep is something that results in a lot of grogginess. So if you're awoken from this stage of sleep, uh, after a night of sleep, you might feel pretty groggy, like if an alarm goes off. Or also if you reach this stage of sleep, while you're napping, this is why a lot of times we'll have that sleep inertia. We'll have that grogginess where we just feel mentally off for, you know, between 30 minutes and an hour afterwards. Um, and that's why there are some apps that I haven't used recently, but I know they're out there where it's like a sleep cycle timer where it tries to wake you up when you're not in the stage of sleep. So you don't feel that grogginess for the first hour or so of you being awake yeah i think uh, it's recommended that if you're gonna if you're gonna nap you should probably only like 20 25 minutes otherwise you do risk uh actually not maybe not feeling worse but feeling kind of sluggish afterwards yeah you can definitely start to drift into that stage uh 25 to 30 minutes after uh or 25 or 30 minutes of a nap and then the last stage that we'll cover is REM sleep, which we've talked about a little bit. It's about 25% of the total time that you are sleeping and dreaming occurs during this stage. Um, and it's usually about 90 minutes after sleep initiation. And each stage gets longer and longer during sleep. So your first cycle of this uh, process, it's about 10 minutes. And then it gets to be more and more up to an hour typically in your last cycle of sleep and 
typically have no muscle tone during this. You're kind of more in a non-activated or like your muscles are more limp in this state. And it's only your eyes and your diaphragm that are moving. Yeah. Um, Wait, hold on before we go ahead. There's another, there's another evolutionary reason for this. So, uh, when we dream, uh, obviously those dreams can be pretty vivid and, uh, jarring and scary at, at times, even, you know, if you have a nightmare, um, and the, the, the reason that our body shuts down our, um, muscle, uh, movement and activation during that time is it's actually to protect you. So it's to prevent you from physically acting out your dreams. Obviously there's things like sleepwalking and things like that, which we're not going to get into in this episode. That's kind of a, a different thing, but, um, yeah, the, one of the reasons that your body, uh, you become pretty much paralyzed during sleep is, uh, your body actually protecting you from doing something like, you know, getting up and, and running and running into a tree or out the window or something like that. Yeah, that's definitely important to uh, cover. I mean, especially potentially in the in the past where, you know, you're sleeping in maybe a tree or something like that, where if you move too much, you know, you're going to fall out of the tree or fall from a height if you're acting out that dream. So, yeah, definitely an interesting thing to note. But last thing in REM sleep is that, as we mentioned before, ideas and skills are consolidated in this phase of sleep. And um, we typically awaken uh, during this phase or like right after this phase spontaneously. So if you've just slept in on a weekend, typically you're coming out of REM sleep when you're waking spontaneously, not, you know, if something is rousing you more so if you're just coming out spontaneously, you're coming from REM sleep. And lots of energy and resources are used here, about 20% more than even your other phases of sleep. So um, very intensive when it comes to resources and also time. So clearly a large reason why we um, have this phase of sleep and why we sleep in general. Yeah. Um Cool. So that is, I guess that's sleep stages, right? Um, do we want to maybe kind of talk about, do we want to get into tips and strategies now or? Yeah, I think that sounds good. I've done a lot of talking. So I think one thing that I think would be helpful just to kick it off is just paint us a scenario of worst case scenario or worst possible situation. Let's say it's, you know, a 20 year old college kid, they have no understanding of sleep or sleep hygiene. And they're just completely ill informed. They have poor lifestyle habits. What does that look like? And you can kind of start out and list yeah. out some of the things that they'd be doing wrong. Yeah. Okay. So, so not, not to attack anybody, um, or, or make you feel bad about your sleep, but I think this is a good way to frame it because it is, uh, it'll make the tips and strategies, uh, more pragmatic and easier for you to understand how they apply. Um, and then it'll, it's also just, uh, you know, unfortunately I think relatable for a lot of people, um, I'm not saying I'm perfect or, or Drew is perfect or that we have perfect sleep or I've always had perfect sleep. Um, you know, everybody has sleep is 
uh, you know, it's part of your, your health and your lifestyle, just like fitness or nutrition are, and everybody has, you know, certain less than optimal habits around it that can always be improved. So coming at this, not again, to attack anybody, but just as a way to paint a picture of like where you could go wrong with sleep. Yeah. And just to hop in here, um, I think framing it in that way makes sense too, because if you already feel pretty good and then this is just an area that you can improve and even get better. And it's an area that you can reap some rewards that, you know, you might not have known were possible in terms of energy and, and health. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So just, all right. So we'll start with just the, the average, like a college student. Um, this is probably the world that Drew and I are, are most familiar with when it comes to sleep and kind of where we're, we're, we're coming from most recently. And, and it, this will be helpful for a lot of people. So say, you know, you're 20, you're 20 years old, maybe you're in school, uh, you have a job, uh, kind of the worst thing you could be doing for your sleep is the following things. It would be not maintaining a proper sleep schedule. So, you know, going to bed at different times, waking up at different times, things like that. So that's, that's number one, something people struggle with. Um, number two would be being careful or, or, or not understanding what you're putting in your body and how that influences sleep. So the most obvious one here is, is caffeine, which we'll get into much more deeply in a little bit here. But caffeine is a major sleep disruptor if you don't use it properly, which uh, unfortunately, a lot of people really don't know how to use it properly. Um, so caffeine, this would mean, you know, you're going to bed at different times every night, you're waking up at different times during the day, and then you're using caffeine throughout the day. Um, and then another kind of detrimental thing would be maybe, you know, three, four nights out of the week, you're uh, using maybe alcohol in a recreational setting or as a way to wind down. This is also going to have a ne negative impact on your sleep. And then uh, again, closer to bedtime, you're spending a lot of time exposed to light, whether that's coming from lamps or screens like your laptop or a TV uh, or your phone, things like this. So those are kind of the environmental and chemical factors that influence uh, that would lead to bad sleep. And then um, there's also kind of a psychological component here. Uh, so it could be anxiety. So just uh, I'll paint, a, I'll paint a picture of all that together. So say I'm, you know, college student, I, you know, stay up late on my phone each night. I had a couple of coffees at like four and 5 PM to get through my studies. It's like a Thursday. Um, I decide to, you know, at like eight or nine, go out for like a few drinks. Um, again, outside out in like light at a bar or at a friend's house. And then I am kind of scrolling on my phone until, you know, midnight, 1am. Just add one in real quick too. Right before you go to bed, you brought pizza back and you just had four slices of pizza right before you went to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Or you ate anything before you went right to bed and any kind of meal. And then, um, on top of all of this, you know, you've got, uh, an exam tomorrow or you've got an exam next week that you're, uh, pretty anxious about. And, uh, you know, you haven't been feeling great anyway, maybe physically and mentally. 
And that's also causing you some stress. And then maybe, you know, you, you finally fall asleep by like 2 a.m. And maybe you're having a couple, you know, some, some waking up throughout the night. And then you're waking up at, you know, 9 a.m. for your, you know, 9.30 or 10 o'clock class. And you're just feeling like not great. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, that, that might be, I might be explaining your life. I'm, I'm not sure whoever, whoever's listening, uh, you, you might've experienced this. I, again, like I said, we're not perfect. Drew and I have probably both had uh, nights like those, uh, more than one for sure. Um, so this is just to, to paint a picture of like a common scenario that you might see or that you might be going through and then, um, what you can do to, to fix these things to get better sleep. Yeah. I think that's a really solid way to frame it. Um, especially for some of the young listeners that are in college or in grad school or even just out of, uh, college or grad school, where they're entering the workforce and they're still kind of having that social life where, you know, they're going out frequently and changing sleep schedule and having some of those lifestyle habits that are uh, typically pretty intertwined. Yeah. And um, that's also not they don't have a social life too. We would never say that. And also sleep can be disturbed by things other than social life too, like your job, like school, things like that. So um, social life is one example, but uh, obviously yeah. your occupation can affect that. Right. So I think going through them now sort of one by one would be helpful. And we can flip this kind of like black and white picture, which is a little bit doom and gloom to like a colorful picture of the optimal version of it. And when I say optimal, it's it's not about being the absolute perfect sleep person in general, because like you just said, uh, there is social life. There are extenuating circumstances. Sometimes the job stress is going to be mounting and you don't want to be such a perfectionist with it where it's going to start to actually affect your sleep or cause you more stress. So with that caveat out of the way, let's dive into caffeine. What should people be thinking about with caffeine? Well, I actually think before we talk about caffeine, we might want to touch on just circadian rhythm because that's going to be prevalent throughout all of this. And that'll actually just bring us to just having like a set sleep wake schedule. So I guess let, we could get into what circadian. So your circadian rhythm is your body's, um, it's your body's internal clock, people say. And essentially what it is, is it's your, it's, it's pretty much, I think it's like almost, it's affected throughout like almost every cell in your body. Every cell in your body basically has this uh, clock that starts and stops uh, based off your sleep-wake schedule. And this influences things like hormone release, metabolism, hunger, mood, all this stuff. So having a set sleep-wake schedule that you, you know, stick to, you don't have to stick to it 100% of the time. Obviously, life will get in the way of that and you'll just cause yourself more frustration by trying to stick to a, a set schedule 100% of the time. But at least, you know, 70, 80% of the time, you're, you're going to get a lot of benefit from that. And this just means, you know, having a set time that you wind down each night and then try to be in bed and going to sleep by, and then having a set time that you wake up each day. That alone will do a lot for your sleep, it boxing yourself in like that. Um, so one of the things that I try to do if I have been in a rut with sleep or I'm traveling um, or if I've had a few sleepless nights, I will still hold myself to the schedule. So even if 
you know, I'm tired and I, I only got four hours of sleep and I'm having trouble falling asleep, I will still say, all right, but 7 a.m. is my wake up time. And I'm going to keep hitting that because what that does is by choose by waking up deliberately at the same time each day, you're setting that clock in your body when you wake up to then help, which will naturally help you wind down about 16 hours from when you woke up. Um, so the time you wake up is very important because it will affect the time that your body begins kind of bringing all of the necessary components into concert together to get you to fall asleep later at night. So this is what kind of sets that circadian rhythm. And then if you, if you don't have those two set points of sleep, wake, um, you're just, you're, you're forever throwing your body in like this guessing game of what it should be doing when it should be waking up, when it should be getting things together to fall asleep. And you're just going to be frustrated because like some nights you'll, you'll be super exhausted by eight and want to fall asleep then. And then you start waking up really early. And then, um, cause you woke up early, you're tired again, come the afternoon, but you have to stay up late or you want to stay up later. And then you're going to bed at, you know, 11 PM midnight. And then you're bought, you know, so you, then you might continue to wake up early and now you're sleep deprived. So having that set sleep wake is super important for setting the circadian rhythm. And that's going to set the tone for everything else down the line. Yeah. And some of those triggers that um, are caused by the circadian rhythm are relevant when we will start talking about caffeine. And one of those is adenosine and adenosine is released by the brain. Um, And this is actually something that I just learned. So adenosine is released by the brain at a cellular level from the breakdown of ATP to ADP. So because you're using ATP in the brain, adenosine gets released and that starts to build up and there's almost like a stockpile that's built in your brain. And then that reaches a threshold level where you start to feel sleepier and sleepier uh, during your day. And maybe you want to get into how caffeine plays into that adenosine and the kind of downstream effects of it. Yeah, totally. So in a world where you you have no caffeine, say, yeah, like Drew said, you you wake up and from the moment you wake up, um, your body, uh, you know, you, you ramp up how much energy you use and adenosine begins to be produced as this byproduct of energy breakdown and adenosine builds up and your brain has adenosine receptors all over it. And this adenosine binds to the adenosine receptors. And, you know, throughout most of the day, throughout the morning, throughout noon, um, early afternoon, you don't really feel the effects of adenosine because your receptors aren't completely saturated or close to completely saturated. But by, you know, the late afternoon, by nighttime, those receptors are almost completely saturated. And what this does is it's basically your brain's uh, gauge of how much energy has been spent that day. And as those receptors are, are bound, it's basically a signal to your brain that, okay, uh, we've been awake for a long time. We've burned a lot of energy. It's time to rest. And adenosine also has this uh, anxiolytic effect. So it's very calming and relaxing for us. And it's also a crucial component in sleep architecture. So what Drew was talking about with sleep stages, it helps um, consolidate those sleep stages and keep them intact and makes them more robust um, and helps kind of bring together, again, a lot of like these brain regions that need to come together for you to fall into a restful night of sleep. So adenosine is super important. Where caffeine comes in, is caffeine as a molecule is very similar in structure to adenosine, but not the same structure. 
So it's similar in structure and actually uh, preferentially binds to the adenosine receptor. It has a stronger binding affinity to the receptor. And all that means is if you have adenosine and caffeine in your brain at the same time, the caffeine is able to bind to the receptor more strongly than the adenosine can. And what this does is it blocks the receptor site. So the adenosine can't then bind. But so you're, think, you're thinking, okay, caffeine's bound to the adenosine receptor. It probably just has the same effect, but no, it actually, it, because it's a slightly different molecule, it doesn't have the same effect as adenosine. It just blocks the receptor and prevents it from being bound by adenosine. So caffeine doesn't really actually give us any energy. It just keeps us awake and feeling that feeling of wakefulness and preventing us from feeling the drowsy effects of adenosine. Um, where this impacts sleep is if you don't have that adenosine binding, um, it's that's going to rob you of, like I said, those, those calming anxiolytic benefits that you get from adenosine. So you'll feel... Uh, kind of more anxious, more jittery, um, less calm. Um, and then it's also going to uh, prevent adenosine from having that effect on your on solidifying your your sleep stages. So your sleep, even if you can fall asleep, you know, you're, you're somebody who you say, oh, caffeine doesn't affect me. I can fall right asleep after having a cup of coffee. That may be true. That's definitely true for, for some people. Some people are also faster metabolizers of caffeine. But it doesn't change the fact that you're still robbing yourself of the beneficial effects of adenosine and the beneficial effects that adenosine has on your sleep. So your sleep is still worse off for it. Even if you are sleeping, you're in a lighter, more fragile, a less restorative sleep from caffeine. Um, Drew, do you have anything you want to add there? There's definitely more to talk about. No, I think you have summarized it really well. And the two phases that are blocked within sleep, I'm pretty sure are the short wave sleep, and then also the REM sleep. So that's going to really affect the restfulness of the sleep. Um, you might find the next day because you're affecting short wave sleep and then also REM. From the short wave component, you're going to feel less recovered in terms of uh, muscle and tissue. So if you're working out hard, let's say you had a, um, a difficult lift in the gym at about 7 p.m., and you might have taken pre-workout or an energy drink, you're going to have worse recovery from that workout because you have impacted the quality of that shortwave sleep. You might also find because of the impacts on REM sleep that your mood is a little bit off. And maybe if you're going back to study in the library that night, you don't really remember things as well as you would have um, if you didn't have that energy drink and poor night of sleep. Um, so it's affecting that REM and then also shortwave sleep component, and it can have some pretty deleterious effects. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all true and good to know. Um, so, all right, so let's talk about how, how to actually use caffeine then as part of a healthy sleep schedule. Um, the One of the most important things to know about caffeine is that it has a half-life of six hours. So on average, again, this is going to be dependent on, on your metabolism, but on average, it has about a half-life of six hours. What this means is that half the original dose of the caffeine you had is still in your system six hours later. So if you had 100 milligrams of caffeine at 12 p.m., by 6 p.m., on average, you should have about 50 milligrams of caffeine still circulating in your system 
And then you can extrapolate that out to a quarter life of um, 25 milligrams at around midnight. And while 25 milligrams is not going to be enough caffeine for most people to keep you wired and awake, um, it is still enough to disrupt your sleep. So with that in mind, if you're going to consume caffeine and still want to give yourself the best chance at a good night of sleep, you want to keep the your caffeine consumption um, outside of that 12-hour window of, of when you're going to go to sleep. So if you're bedtime and you know you you want to be asleep in bed, you know, totally off to sleep by like 10, 10:30 p.m., you should have your last cup of coffee um, by around 9 a.m., I would say. And that doesn't mean that also doesn't mean from the hours of like seven to nine, nine a.m. Drink as many coffees as you can. Um, it just means keep the coffee consumption in that range and keep it in in a healthy range. I think four hundred milligrams is the RDA of for caffeine. Um, so th- that depending on where you get your coffee from, caffeine content will vary w- uh, wildly. But um, if we're just going to stick with the standard. I think the standard just to, just to hop in. Uh, not really RDA. It's it's like the limit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the upper yeah, intake. Yeah. yeah. Upper limit. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, yeah, but I, let's just say the average cup of coffee, just, you know, black coffee has about 140 milligrams of caffeine in it, let's say. Um, so two cups of coffee, you'll, you're, you're pretty good. You're at about 280, 300 milligrams of caffeine at that point. Um, and you want to keep that outside of that 12 hour window when you're going to go to sleep to give yourself the best chance. Um, so if you're a student, I can't stress this enough. If you're going to this study at night, please do not grab that cup of coffee to to just get that extra boost, you know, after class from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. to study for that exam you have tomorrow because it's just going to ruin everything you you just studied and all the work you put in. Another thing that we'll talk about later is if you're a student, do not pull all-nighters. It's easily the dumbest and worst thing you can do for your your grades for your learning this goes for also if if you're a professional too like you have a big day at work the next day or you want to do your job well at all um do not pull all-nighters trying to get things in get the sleep over any of the extra studying or work you were going to do it's it's going to be much more worth it yeah just to hop in here real quick uh james and i both went to westchester Great place. Love the school. However, having the Starbucks open to, I think, 10 p.m., right? I think it was 10 p.m. in the library was uh, yeah, pretty bad in terms of availability of caffeine sources. And actually, the last year that I was there, I don't know if you were there at the time, James, but there was actually a section of the library that was, uh, quote, 524. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, the last year you could be there 24 hours a day before I think it closed at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the weekends, maybe it was 10 or 12. But you could be there till like 24-7 Monday through Friday, which I think was well-intentioned because a lot of students probably requested it. But, you know, in terms of enabling poor sleep hygiene and behaviors, uh, I can't think of a worst or worse uh, way to kind of approach that problem. And I wonder even if the Starbucks is open even later now too. Yeah, maybe. That. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. Still love Westchester. But. <laughs> yeah, but 
the, the takeaway here is, yeah, if you're, especially if you're a student, just cause it, this is where all nighters come up. I mean, depending on the line of work you're in, maybe all nighters might come up, but it's much less common. Uh, but it, it's so common in like just college student culture, you know, pulling the all nighter, you know, the, the night before or a couple nights before the test, or it's usually the night before. Um, that that's a kind of a part of a bigger issue. Maybe you just didn't study at all, um, which this episode is not about. But um, even if you did not study, you'd be better off just spending the day trying to study as much as you can, and then spending the night getting the best sleep that you possibly can. That would actually give you a much better chance on the test than uh, spending all day studying and then spending all night studying uh, and not getting any sleep. Um, so so yeah, that's that's huge keep so back to caffeine keep it in that 12 outside of that 12 hour window um as a rule i think drew you you follow this um neither of us follow this perfectly but i think we both probably follow it of just no caffeine in the afternoon um you know again we're not perfect with it i'll have a cup of coffee at you know i'm i'm in bed now we'll talk about we can both talk about our own sleep schedules and things but i'm in bed now by 9 p.m. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't days when I'm not having a coffee at, you know, 10 AM or 11 AM just cause I, I want to, but most of the time I, I try to be pretty disciplined with myself and keep it my last cup at till like 6 AM. Yeah. For me, it's, um, I usually go to bed at around 10 PM and I think I have a caffeine cutoff about noon right now, but that's not always perfect. I would say the noon to 3 p.m. zone is more of like the uh, yellow zone. Like the green zone is up until noon. The yellow zone is up to 3 p.m. And then red zone is just after 3 p.m. If I do that, then I definitely feel it the next day for sure. Um, But as long as it's in that before noon time or even up to about three sometimes, I'm usually fine. Uh, I just won't be as tired going to sleep. But I think that we've given caffeine a pretty solid go here. So our fictional kind of character that's in college now potentially didn't have that afternoon caffeine. So now they want to go to bed uh, a little bit early now. So it's going to be an early night. They're still going to go out and drink. How can they handle the drinking while still being in a zone where they're going to have good sleep quality? What should they be thinking about if they're now going to be cognizant of the alcohol intake? Yeah. I mean, I guess we we could both probably have input here on this, but I don't know. This one's a little bit more tough. I don't, I'm not as well versed on the, the science for, for this one, but um, anecdotally, and I have also heard this, I think in, or read this in kind of some literature, it's about two drinks is kind of the max most people can handle um, before their sleep starts to be disturbed by alcohol. There's also, it is a timing aspect to it and a metabolism aspect. So if you're having, you know, two drinks and then going, trying to go right to sleep, um, you might feel like you fall asleep quicker. You might feel a little drowsier, but uh, as your body tries to metabolize that alcohol into the night, I think your body temperature gets raised. Um, your, your body's, your body, you're forcing your body to work into the night and that's going to keep you awake. And I think some of the byproducts too, of alcohol breakdown, uh, 
are very disruptive towards to to sleep. So yeah, if you're going to drink, yeah, like socially, like again, nothing wrong with alcohol per se uh, being part of you know a healthy life, but in, when it comes to your sleep, you know, I think as a general rule, you know, for myself, just speaking. No more than if I want to get a, you know a really good night's sleep. No more than two drinks, and try to keep them. You know, give myself at least three hours before I'm going to go to bed. So that's that's maybe you know that's a happy hour or something. Doing something like that, and you'll probably be pretty safe with that. Um, anything more yeah, than think- that, though, like binge any sort of binge drink. You know, two two drinks or you know more than two drinks, you're also going to run into some trouble. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's following the same rules that you would use for driving, right? It's for every hour or for every drink, it's going to be an hour to metabolize it. And then so if you have two drinks, you're going to have to wait two hours or even potentially more, I feel personally, until you're back to kind of a baseline. So if you're having those drinks at 7 p.m., you know, by nine at the earliest, but I feel like it's even more. Uh, maybe more like 10 or 11, then you're going to be in a, a position where you're not going to be um, affecting sleep as much. And I think even just alcohol intake pushes back your um, circadian rhythm a little bit, um, even if you're not like tipsy going to bed. So there's definitely impacts there. And just like caffeine, alcohol has impacts on sleep architecture. So it's going to impact your REM sleep and then also your short wave sleep. Um, or your slow wave sleep. And one of the things that's important here is that your REM is pushed back later in the night. So you have very suppressed REM sleep in the front half of sleep until you've fully gotten rid of that alcohol. And that's why if you've ever had too many drinks on a given night, you might wake up with very vivid dreams. It's because all of that REM sleep is being pushed that back half and it's really building up to where you have extremely vivid dreams because of that. Um, so it really messes with that sleep architecture. And as we know, if you're disrupting REM, you're going to have alterations in mood. And as anyone that's had a hangover can um, sympathize with, uh, that lack of REM sleep is one of the reasonings for that. Yeah, Totally. Uh, just to, cause you mentioned how alcohol impacts your circadian rhythm. I just want to bring it back to caffeine really quick on one point that we missed, which is when you wake up in the morning, you should wait at least an hour after waking to have your first cup of coffee or your first dose of caffeine. And when I say waking up, I don't mean, you know, you kind of woke up and then you're just laying in bed for longer and then fall back asleep. I mean, like waking up, moving around, um, you want to wait at least an hour to 90 minutes before you have your first dose of caffeine. And the reason is because naturally, uh, as part of your circadian rhythm, when you wake, when you're approaching your, your wake time, your body is slowly, uh, ramping up the amount of cortisol that is released in your body. And cortisol is actually a stress hormone and it's, it's, it's good. It has beneficial effects. Um, when cortisol is, is high and raised for too long, that's when you run into trouble. That's kind of a, a different topic, but Cortisol is part of a healthy hormonal balance. And as you get closer to the time that you're going to wake up, your body begins ramping up uh, cortisol production. It's part of your circadian rhythm. Your circadian rhythm gets this going. And that is kind of what prompts you to wake up in the morning. Caffeine also will artificially increase cortisol. 
So if the first thing you're doing after you wake up is you're grabbing a cup of coffee or an energy drink and you're slamming that that caffeine down, what's actually happening is it takes it takes about an hour after you wake up for your cortisol levels to fully peak and you for to reach that full wakefulness state. Um, so you don't want to interrupt your body's ability to do that. It's the same idea as uh, like taking how taking steroids or exogenous testosterone will uh, actually ramp down your body's ability to produce its own testosterone. Same applies for cortisol. Um, if you're pumping exogenous or, or pumping something into your body that is promoting the the release of excess cortisol at a time that your body is also trying to do that naturally. Uh, your body is going to get accustomed to that and stop naturally producing as much cortisol because it's expecting that exogenous source to do it for it. And the effect that this has is it becomes harder for you to naturally wake up in the morning. So you don't want to disturb that. So you want to keep it, you know, 60 to 90 minutes after it, then have that caffeine. Um, and then you can kind of ride that cortisol peak for a little bit longer and, and, and really reap the full benefits of that wakefulness. Um, so that's just another quick little little note. Yeah, I think that's important. Just making sure that caffeine is actually additive. And I believe there's some interesting thing that you can find online. Maybe I can find it and put it in the show notes. There's something that was done by the army where they actually created a calculator where you found sleep and wake time. And then they found essentially where the peaks and troughs are in an individual's circadian rhythm in terms of uh, their energy. And from that, it actually tells you what amount of caffeine to have and at what points in the day. Um, it's a little bit clunky. It's like definitely an older tool, but it's, uh, it's definitely super interesting to play around with. And it definitely supports what you're saying in terms of delaying that caffeine intake so that it's, it's additive. But yeah. I think we've hit the, um, alcohol and caffeine pretty solid, which those are two of the really big ones. But I think that there's other ones that are easier to shift because people typically have like habits around caffeine and alcohol intake. Sometimes those are malleable and easy to shift. Sometimes they're not. But I think there's some other things that are low hanging fruit that can be modified. Um, yeah, I think I th getting into that. light would be helpful. Yeah, I think we can get into light. I think what would be helpful maybe if you want to talk about real quick, though, is just while we're still on the topic of uh, consumption is maybe just talk about food and eating before yeah. bed and what impact that has. Yeah. So when we're talking about eating before bed, the biggest thing is not having a huge meal. It's not that you can't have anything before bed. It's just avoiding that meal that's like a, a dinner size. But it's actually fine to have a snack prior to bed. And this can actually even improve sleep quality. So having something that's easily digestible, um, like carbs or protein before bed, they've even found them. I think in some studies, protein shake before bed has been found to uh, assist in muscle protein synthesis. Uh, historically, people would take casein protein before sleep because it's a long release. I don't know if that's completely necessary. Um, any type of protein will probably do. Uh, high quality protein will probably do. Uh, but having, you know, a protein shake and a banana or a protein shake, banana, peanut butter, or some type of small snack before bed can really help to make sure that you're not incredibly hungry in the morning. 
So you'll feel a little bit fuller and you won't feel like you're just hangry to start off your day. And it can improve the protein synthesis and then also the quality of your sleep. So um, just limiting that huge meal is important because when you are sleeping, as we said, you're going to be lowering your heart rate and then also decreasing your body temperature. And when you're digesting something and it's a huge meal, you're going to be shifting the circulation around a lot. So you're going to drive a higher heart rate in order to help uh, digest that meal. And then the blood flow will go from the periphery to the center of your body to help uh, move the nutrients throughout your body from the digestive system to the periphery. And then also the um, respiration rate is going to increase because you're breaking down a lot of um, nutrients to uh, in order to digest them. So just avoiding that big meal is important. You'll see oftentimes on wearables that if you had a, a meal before bed, your HRV is going to be affected. You'll have a higher heart rate. Your deep sleep will be pushed back. Um, and then also your respiration rate will be higher. Um, so that's just something that's important to note. Yeah. And I, I think do one, maybe just quick caveat on the protein is, um, probably just want to be careful about how much protein you have, because, uh, in terms of just the thermic effect of food, protein requires the most energy to break down. So I'm sure this just applies to if it's just a big meal, but yeah, your, your body is literally uh, burning energy trying to to break that food down and protein requires the most energy. So um, you just want to be careful about body temperature there because body temperature is really important to getting a good night's yeah, sleep. Just to put a bow in that. Yeah, that's an important point because the thermic effect is high. I think it's about like 30% of the actual molecule, but that comes into play even more when it's a larger meal because the absolute amount of calories from carbs and fat plus the high thermic effect of protein versus if you're just having, you know, 30, 40 grams of protein, it's only 160 calories. So then like on an absolute scale, like a high protein snack versus a high protein meal uh, will be different. So yeah, that's a good point to bring up and an important caveat. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've covered consumption we can get into light now. So, all right. In our hypothetical scenario, now our college student is, he is going to bed, uh, at a set, set time each night, waking up at a set time. He's keeping his caffeine, uh, outside of that 12 hour window. He's not having any afternoon caffeine anymore. Um, he's being mindful of any, you know, alcoholic drinks he might have, uh, during the night. And he's also, you know, being mindful of when his last meal is before he goes to bed. So where can we improve still? And light is definitely the next place where we can improve. So uh, light is just a signal that your body has always used to set your circadian rhythm, to set, um, you know, certain aspects of your mood, your attention, your cognition, uh, your, your hormone release, all these things. Um, again, if you think just in evolutionary terms, when we weren't living inside of, of buildings and houses, uh, we were outside and the sun would, uh, you know, rise and that would wake us up. And that's that, a strong signal. Um, what that actually is, is, uh, the sun emits, um, light that is on the, 
on the on the light spectrum, you've got all kind of the colors of the rainbow. And the sun emits what is in the kind of blue light spectrum. So everyone's probably heard of blue light blocking glasses. And uh, this blue light, when it hits our, our not only our retinas, but in our, in our eyes, but even our, our skin, has uh, the effect of halting uh, melatonin release. Because again, for tens of you know, hundreds of thousands of years, our bodies have associated uh, that light exposure with daytime, which um, meant, you know, it was time to be active, time to move, time to, time to get food. Um, so we need to halt uh, the production of any hormones that are associated with uh, sleep and promote hormones and other, other uh, chemical signals that are responsible for wakefulness. So light exposure, we'll start at night, light exposure in the morning is equally as important, but um, at night, you know, again, evolutionarily speaking, we didn't have uh, sources of artificial light. Now, obviously the lamp in your living room and your phone screen are not as strong as the sun, but still there's sources of light that your body takes in as a signal um, that in your body interprets as daytime. So if you're having too much light exposure too late into the night, you're kind of tricking your body into thinking that it is daytime, that it's time to be awake and uh, it's not time to produce uh, sleep promoting, uh, you know, hormones and, and activities in the body. So with that in mind, you want to get into a dark environment when it's around the time that you go to bed. So that means to start dimming the lights, to start, you know, turn night shift on, on your phone. We'll put a little guide for like how to do that in the show notes. Um, it means limiting your screen time, like getting away from TVs and laptop screens and, and also your phone screen. Um, and even just kind of shutting down some of the lamps around you. And then probably this is going to be dependent on you and, and your schedule and your routine. But for me, I try to be in a completely dark environment within 30 minutes of the time that I want to actually be asleep. So this means if I want to be asleep by like 9.30, 9.45, I'm laying in bed and probably like listening to a podcast or something. Something doesn't require any any source of light um, at around 9 p.m. Um, and this is going to give your body the best chance to really, um, ramp down all wakefulness activity and ramp up all that, um, sleep promoting activity. So do, Drew, do you have anything to kind of comment there for, for nighttime yeah. exposure? Yeah, I think, um, something that ties in pretty well here too is the anxiety component. I think that our phones or the news or any type of media that we're taking in, prior to bed can be very either just stimulating and energizing, or it could be anxiety inducing as well. And this kind of state of arousal that it creates makes it harder to get to sleep, especially because certain forms of media can affect those brain waves in different ways. And as we mentioned, the brain wave activity entering sleep shifts in a kind of different direction. So making sure that we're you know, listening to a, a podcast that's relaxing, it's not, you know, the world news and everything going bad in the world um, edition would be wise. Uh, maybe reading like a fictional novel with some light form of uh, light, maybe some more red light to illuminate the pages. Uh, things like that kind of tie in well here as well. 
uh, just making sure that we're taking in content that's not arousing or um, anxiety inducing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's an, that's a super important point because again, we're not we're not monks. We, we don't just all of a sudden shut down and just go lay down in the dark. Uh, we you know we we read, we listen to podcasts, we do things, um, even you know watch TV, and we can talk a little bit about some of the ways that you can still have you know, screens in your, in your life at night with some technologies like, um, uh, blue light blocking glasses or, uh, some of the settings that you can manipulate on these devices to limit the amount of light that comes from them. Um, but I think that that nicely wraps up light exposure at night. Um, and as we said, light exposure in the morning is also super important. So this sets your circadian rhythm. So, uh, I think the advice that, if most people, anyone's heard advice on this, it's probably come from uh, Andrew Huberman, who's like super big on you this. You can't listen to one Huberman podcast yeah. without getting it. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely popularized this for yeah, yeah, which has yeah, been helpful. Yeah, he's definitely beaten it into my head. Um, which is, as soon as you wake up, you want to get outside and get light exposure. Um, if you wake up before the sun, you know, great, more power to you. You you probably have an easier time with this because you can just, uh, you know kind of schedule this into your day and then go get light exposure. But if you're somebody who wakes up after the sun has already come up, um, don't, you know, continue to lay in a dark room for, you know, another half hour, hour, you know, scrolling on your phone or something like this. You want to, to set, really set a strong sleep wake cycle. You want to, as soon as you, you know, you wake up and you, you feel you have enough energy to, to get up and get out of bed, um, get up, get outside, get direct sunlight in your eyes. Obviously don't stare at the sun, but look up at the sky. Um, even if it's an overcast or cloudy day, you're still getting uh, that light exposure and it's still setting a strong signal for you. Um, it's also great to just like get moving. So, you know, work this into a morning walk is a great way to do it as well. Um, and what this will do is it'll really promote wakefulness. And then it'll also set a very strong signal for your body Um of when it's time to, to wake up. And it, it'll also have like some really strong physiological effects too, because like I said, that light exposure, that blue light, um, blue light has positive effects when it's during the day. And uh, it'll have tremendously positive effects on your alertness, on your mood, on your cognition. Cause what it's also doing in, on a physiologic level is it's a signal to your body to, all right, melatonin production has to come to a complete halt. You know, cortisol production has to rise um, these other sorts of things. So it'll, it'll make you much more, more wakeful. Yeah, definitely. I've noticed that I'll kind of go back and forth between having a morning walk and then kind of getting too lazy when it's cold out to follow through with it. And I've been back on a pretty solid streak the past two weeks of going for a walk in the morning and getting that uh, not really bright light exposure because at this point in the year, it's, it's a little bit more gloomy in Pennsylvania, but getting that bright, that light exposure has been really helpful in improving my circadian rhythm. I feel like I'm tired at around nine, nine thirty now, rather than it being pushed back till more like 10 or 11. And also I'm just noticing a little bit better, uh, recovery and mood throughout the day. So I think it really helps to reset you in a, a nice way. But I think that covers about everything on light. I think shifting gears into temperature could be a solid 
place to start to wrap up the conversation. Um, we've talked about temperature in terms of body temperature as it relates to eating and as it relates to some of the stages of sleep. And like we said, when you eat a large meal before bed, that's going to increase your heart rate, increase your body temperature. But that is something that's going to negatively affect your sleep. So how can we positively affect our sleep in terms of our body temperature? There are a few different ways that we can uh, turn up the dial on this particular part of sleep. And one of them is um, by taking a warm shower before bed, um, which is actually kind of the opposite of what you'd think because you're actually trying to have a cooler core body temperature. But actually having a warm shower or warm bath prior to going to sleep is going to lower that core body temperature because all of that warm blood is going to be going out towards the periphery. And then when it's out towards the periphery and it's able to be let out as heat by the body, then the core body temperature is able to cool. And as we mentioned before, in stage, I think it was stage one, uh, N1, that's when we start to have a lower core body temperature. Okay, stage two NREM is when we have a lower core body temperature and heart rate. So it helps us to drift into that sort of transitory uh, non-REM stage of sleep, uh, lasting about 25 minutes um, before we get into some of those deeper phases of sleep. You might find that if you have a very warm room as well, it's tough to get into a deep stage of sleep and you might feel a little bit more agitated while you sleep because you're just not able to get into that deeper stage of sleep because you can't pass through uh, non-REM stage two. So oftentimes the advice besides taking a warm shower might be to have a dark room. Um, consideration is the, the dark room, but then also having the cold room as well. So this is really something that's comfortably cold and it'll be different for everyone. Some people, 68 degrees is perfect, but other people, they might require even as low as 62 degrees. We just want to make sure that we're not shivering and it's something that's keeping us up because we need to create heat in order to feel comfortable. So the typical advice is between 62 to 68 degrees in terms of the room environment. And that is something that really helps my sleep uh, in a profound way. I usually keep the bed at about bedroom at about 66 degrees and that gets me into sleep super quickly compared to if it's um, closer to the summer and it's you know maybe 70 degrees in the room because the AC is not pumping as well. Yeah, it does really make a huge difference. I, I notice a massive difference if it's even, you know, 70, 72 degrees. I notice this most in hotel rooms, honestly, because you have the thermostat right there and you can really control the temperature. Um, I even during the winter will sleep with the windows open to get it even colder. Um, so yeah, temperature is huge and really that's kind of the starter. I think a really, really great beginning strategy for getting better sleep. And like, you'll notice as we talked about that, like 
no, you don't have to buy anything to get to get better sleep. It's really just all behavioral and environmental. It's you know keeping that caffeine consumption out, outside of the twelve hour window, being mindful of the alcohol consumption. Again, two drinks, um, you know, maximum, and keeping it to you know two three hours before you actually want to go to bed, giving your body time to metabolize. No big meals before bed. Keeping a room temperature, you know, in, in a nice cool range, and then having a set sleep wake schedule that you actually stick to and then um, adjusting your light exposure uh, accordingly, ramping down the light exposure at night and then getting uh, really strong light exposure in the morning. If you can just do those things right, and I know it sounds like a lot, um, but if, if you can focus on those things, you will notice a uh, dramatic improvement in your sleep if you're not doing those things, right? And even if you're doing uh, even just like half of those things, uh, doing the other half will still be a, a massive benefit in terms of sleep quality. Yeah, I'd say that any one of these different variables, if you correct them, at least 80% of the time is going to be a pretty big unlock for anybody's sleep quality as well as quantity. We didn't get to a lot of the wearables today, but I'm actually glad for that because that will give us the opportunity to potentially give us a full episode on these, which I think they probably deserve because there's so many different wearables out there now. And there's so many different things that they're tracking. I mean, I look at my Apple watch and it's endless amounts of things that can be tracked. So I think that will definitely give the respect that is deserved to wearables. Um, but that's all that I have on my end. Anything else from you, James? No, I think that's it. And I think that's a good point. Yeah, we should maybe just do a whole episode on wearables and we can we can tie it back into sleep and then also talk about some of the other uh, fitness markers that you can track with wearables. I, I noticed one, one thing we just didn't talk about was the anxiety piece that can people struggle people can struggle with before bed. And that's, you know, again, as as simple, I'm not trying to belittle it, but as simple as uh, you know picking up a mindfulness practice, you know, there's a, a million apps to do this, YouTube videos. Um, maybe, you, maybe you just like listening to something calming before bed and then uh, journaling is I know one that's been super helpful for both of us. Um, there's seems to be for me, at least a uh, very strong impact on sleep when uh, m most of my sleepless nights have been due to just purely racing thoughts and things like that. And being able to get those onto a page and, feel like they're they've been um the the burden has been lifted off my brain having to deal with them and i can focus on them tomorrow and they've been accounted for uh has kind of worked wonders on my sleep so if anxiety is an issue for you with sleep definitely give those two things uh a try as well i would say the last thing that i would say is at least anecdotally when i've had a long week of lower nights of sleep um, or worse sleep quality because I'm just so wound up by stress, usually around finals week and things like that back in undergrad, going for a very hard run or some type of interval workout has been tremendous for me. Not only are you getting the endorphins after the workout, but you're almost, you feel so drained where you need the sleep and your body almost like gives up the war. So I think that could be helpful for anyone that's struggling with anxiety and sleepless nights. Yeah, totally. And I think this also people might have questions on, uh, you know, supplements related to sleep and things like that. And um, 
the more I think about it, that could probably just be its own episode as well. If we, we want to kind of dive into that world of, you know, yeah, maybe in a different episode wearables and then in a different episode, we could do supplements because uh, to, to jam them in here. Yeah, you're right. Would, would not be doing them justice. So I think we're going to wrap up uh, right here. All right. Thank you, guys. Cool. Thanks, guys.